What do minimalist shoes and winning a reality show like Survivor have in common? Well, we're going to find out that plus a whole lot more, including some behind the scenes stuff from both Survivor and Shark Tank with today's guest on today's episode of the Movement Movement, the podcast for people who want to know the truth about what it takes to have a happy, healthy, strong body starting feet first. Wait, I got to turn myself you on. There we go. Starting feet first, because, you know, those things are your foundation. And also we're breaking down the propaganda, the mythology, sometimes the flat out lies you've been told about what it takes sure. to run or walk or play or hike or do yoga or CrossFit, whatever it is you like to do, and to do that enjoyably, efficiently, effectively. Did I say enjoyably? Don't answer. I know I did. It's a trick question. Because look, if you're not having fun, do something different to you are. You're not going to keep it up if it's not fun. Okay. I am Stephen Sashin, co-founder and CEO of ZeroShoes.com. I'm the host of the Movement Movement Podcast. We call it that because we are, we, and that involves all of us, are creating a movement about natural movement, letting your body do what it's made to do without getting in the way. And the we part, what you can do is really simple. Go to www.jointhemovementmovement.com. You don't need to do anything to join. You don't need to pay anything. There's no secret handshake. Um, but you'll find all the previous episodes, all the way you can engage with us on social media and uh, other things like that. You know, the gist of it. Basically, if you want to support what we're doing, Give us a thumbs up, like us, uh, give us a review, give us five stars wherever, hit the bell icon on YouTube. I mean, you know the drill. If you want to be part of the tribe, please subscribe. So let's jump in. Mike, pleasure having you here. Tell people who you are and what you're doing here. Hey, what's going on, Stephen? Thanks so much for having me, man. I appreciate it. I'm Mike Gabler, the Alec Gabler from season 43 of Survivor. Um, I'm the second oldest winner to ever win the show. And it was a fantastic, epic adventure. And I'm so happy so many people were on it with me. That's what's amazing about uh, you know reality TV is you have these big adventures and everybody gets to go on it with you. I mean, Stephen, you were on Shark Tank, so you were more comfortable. Although I don't know. Uh, being in front of those sharks, maybe uh, I'm, I'm also going to take starvation over that. I don't know. <laughs> well, I can tell you, as a former professional stand-up comic, I thrive on situations where it's like a high-pressure thing with a seeming audience. So I had no problem. The difference between you and me, I mean, there are many, but in the reality TV context is, you know, we just taped the show and then we waited to see if it was going to air. We And then we had to, once it aired, we knew what the results were. Or no, once we, how did this work? Once we taped, we knew what the results were. We couldn't talk about it until it aired and that was about six months later but we didn't have the ongoing thing that you did so what was it like i mean when did you i'm gonna there's so many questions i want to ask when were you taping what was the delay between then and when things were airing so you could see how people were responding and then what was the delay you know from the final episode or from when you finally when you taped the final episode when you knew you won to be able to say to everyone hey i won so a uh, great question. And it was similar, actually, even though it was a longer journey that I was on. So last year I took off in, in April, May, and they filmed it in April, May. I got back on June 1st and I had to kind of zip my lip and keep it under my hat for about six months because June, uh, December 14th was the finale. Right. So the difference with Survivor versus Shark Tank is, you know, you're on an episode and then, you know, we're on a season. So, yeah, yeah no, it's like yeah, we're, we're one and done. One and done. And, you know, you, you guys did, you know, like even though I'm sure your presentation was probably an hour or so long, you know, you had your your 10 minutes on the show. And, you know, that got the ball rolling and got the word out about your amazing zero shoes. And me, it was like every week. And what was weird about it, too, and, and you can relate to this, you know what happens, but you don't know how it's going to be edited. Right. So 
right? Well, right? it's so well, hold on. Well, wait, I'm going to make a note because I want to come back to that and I don't want to forget that. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Okay. All right. Please continue. Yes, you bet. I mean, the, the wild part was, you know, it's like watching, like knowing that the score is is 32 to 30 in double overtime, but you have no idea what plays they're going to show. And yeah. every week I was kind of on the edge of my seat and, you know, I'm like, what's the edit going to show? Are they going to, you know, I think these things are important, but are they going to show it? But, you know, the producers of Survivor do a masterful job. They've been doing this for over 20 years. I mean, 43 seasons. It's the granddaddy of all reality shows. And, you know, what they like to do is they don't want to like to, to make it look like, oh, you know, Gabler is is winning. Gabler is winning. Gabler's winning. Gabler wins. They right. want to make it look like, and they did. They had a great job where everybody at the end, like the finale had five people in the finale which, you know, two got eliminated and then you had the final three that battled it out. But it was um, – it's anybody's game. And in honest, and honestly, it was pretty much anybody's game. This season I thought was unique. And I know I'm a homer for 43 because I was on it. But um, it was unique in that they cast – everybody on the show was a fan of the show. Interesting. Every single person, Stephen, was a huge fan of the show. I thought I was a super fan – Owen, other people on the show, absolute super fans. I mean, they knew deep. They knew like, you know, like, like Tom Brady went to college at Michigan and like they know survivor players. Owen would know like, oh, Steve Sashin, he went to middle school and blah, blah, blah. His first dog was named Bruce. He just he knew all that stuff where I was like, I've watched every episode. I'm a huge fan of the show, but I was out outgunned by Owen on that one. And everybody on the season was. So I think the fun part was, you know, it's almost like a roller coaster ride in the new era because it's it's faster. Yeah. It's a condensed version, but you know how like a roller coaster goes tick, 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 and it's a slow ride up. And then all of a sudden it goes. Well, because everybody was so sophisticated on the in the game and the gameplay, you didn't have as much clumsiness as mm-hmm. you know, people that come in there and they're just like you're like, oh, that person's a villain or that person's really good at this. Everybody kept their cards pretty close to their vest until the roller coaster dropped. And then it was just like mayhem and craziness. And um, it really was a fun season to be on and to watch. So backing up to not knowing what the editing is. Well, I'm going to back up a half a step. So let's do, there's again, so many things we could do. When we were in that interim phase between taping and airing, where again, you know, we had no idea what it was going to look like. We could talk about the editing in a second. My favorite thing was we're at a family event, like I can't remember what it was, and a bunch of my parents' friends were there, a bunch of entrepreneurs, and they were all coming up to Lena and and me saying, God, you guys should be on Shark Tank. And we'd be going, oh, that's a great idea. <laughs> and we just had to, you know, buy it. Oh, how phone. funny. And you, you you had already done it. Yeah, we'd already done it. And even, see, here's the thing, which difference with Shark Tank, they tape more segments than they air. So while we knew what happened, we didn't know if we were going to be on yeah. at all. So we were we took a vacation the end of December, um, and thanks to the magic of frequent flyer points, we flew down to Ecuador to visit some friends. And while we're there, we get an email saying you're going to be on in two weeks. Like ah, so I'm doing PR from Ecuador where there's practically no internet connectivity. Yeah, um, but again, but we didn't know until the very end if we were even going to be on. And then there were some crazy things that happened. I'll, I'll come back to that too. But that interim phase is so interesting. I had an experience of this before we were on Shark Tank with Top uh, Top Chef. So there's a local restaurateur, a guy named Jose Rosenberg, who was on Top Chef. And we were watching, watching, watching. 
And uh, he decided to have a party at a local bar for the finale. And so me and Lena, a couple other friends, we went there and we're sitting like right next to Hosea. And the whole time, the whole episode, he's just not looking happy. And so we're thinking, ah, screw it. You know, we're just going to leave. We don't want to be here when everyone gets depressed. And then they announce him as the winner. And his roommates freaked out because they had no idea either. So, I mean, he really held his cards close to wow. that. And, and that was super fun. You know, it, it, you just said it's super fun. And I think that's what's really cool about it. So Jeff Probst, you know, the, the legend, the myth, the, the everything that he is, you know, he's the ultimate Survivor fan and he's the host of the show. When we were leaving, you know, Jeff kind of gave us a little bit of counsel and, you know, we are contractually obliged, right? They will come Wait, after you. Hold on. hold on. You and I had the same contract. So because yes, Trump, did. Well, same producers. And in fact, there's a clause in our contract that said we're not going to hold them liable if we die on set. And we said, what's going to happen on set that could kill us? They said, no, we cobbled this. You know, we keep adding to our contract based on our existing shows. And the first contract was Survivor. So we had that same, you know, you could Interesting. But I so looked at that myself and I'm looking at it like. I mean, it's like mine was like 65 pages long, maybe longer. And oh, yeah, you just have to sign it all right. It's whatever. But it, you're looking at it going like, OK, huh, that's sobering. <laughs> yeah. Well, so let's let's compare notes for us. If we told anybody what happened in advance of the show airing, we promised not that they could come after us. We promised that we would pay five million dollars. Is that the same, same for you? Yeah. Same. yeah. Same. Five million dollars. And they were, you know, there's there were pages of of basically stick with not much carrot, but Jeff gave us a carrot at the end that I thought was, was really impactful to people like, you know, us because, and your friend Jose, because he said, look, obviously you're contractually obliged. You can't just say anything, blah, blah, blah. But just as importantly, and he said it, he goes, just as importantly, you know, don't ruin it for your friends and family because you want to, you want them on the journey on the edge of their couch doing what it is. And that was pretty, pretty telling to me about the type of person Jeff is, because he's yeah. a cool guy. And he was, you know, he's a fan of the show. He's the ultimate fan. And he was like, you know, don't, don't slip it out because you want your friends and family to be there on the edge of your seat. Like you were saying, you were at Jose's restaurant and you wanted to make sure that, you know, he he kept it quiet so that when it happened, everybody was like, wow. And it was uh Jeff was right and Jose was right. And uh that's kind of how you do it, I guess. So, you know, you know, the only people I told when I got back was um, my wife, because I have to tell somebody and she also signed the same stuff. Yeah. And and then I told my my father who's in poor health. So mm -hmm. I just wanted to make sure he would know. And then but I didn't tell him about the donation. I just told him about the win. And then we were in Houston together with my whole family. Uh, my mother on one side, my dad on the other side, when the announcement was, and of course, everybody erupts, probably like in the restaurant with Jose. And then we, um, I was like, wait, 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 hold on. There's, there's something else coming up. So, something else. so yeah, yeah. So it was, it was really cool. I mean, what a, what a heck of an adventure. It was really neat. Well, for people who don't know, um, so tell them how much you won and what you did with your winnings. Oh, sure. Sure. So the grand prize for being the sole survivor of Survivor is $1 million. And I donated 100% of it every penny to veterans that are in need of help. I moved the million dollars into a direct access fund. So it's legally every penny, I can't even buy a, a pair of zero shoes with the money. So it's all in there. And um, I got a 
a lawyer and an accountant to kind of figure out the taxes so that you know, there's no issues with it. And and that hopefully will get figured out here soon. And then we're going to start donating. And we've got some amazing charities figured out. They're going to help a lot of veterans. And it's just a, a, a it's icing on top of the cake. When we turned down a $400,000 offer from Kevin, a lot of people said that we were insane. Now, we knew what our valuation was. So we knew it was you know easy to walk away from. But you know, for a lot of people, 400 grand is a lot of money. Here's two and a half times that, a million dollars. How do people react? It was you know on the set at the time because it was right in, at the middle of tribal council. We were right at the end of it. Wait, when, and you hadn't you hadn't like warned anyone in advance that this is something you might do. No, sir. Thanks for making that that clear. I didn't want to tell anybody because I wanted to win on my own merit. I didn't want people to go, well, he's doing a good thing for people. And I also I would have felt terrible using a patient population that I care deeply about. For my own gain. I wanted to win it clean and then do this clean. And that's what I did. So, you know, the expressions on everybody's faces, the tears in their eyes were all genuine and real because it. I dropped it on them literally one minute after Jeff announced me as the sole survivor. It's brilliant. Now, as you, you just alluded to two things that other people might not know. So one is what your actual profession is. Uh, well, I'm going to do this. I, I can't do this as one question at a time because there's too many thoughts going through my head. What your actual profession is, what your connection is to this veteran organization. And, you know, the other thing people must think is that you must be a bajillionaire because otherwise, why would you give away a million dollars? Sure, sure. Those are all good questions. And let me just answer them in a row. But so my profession is I am a heart valve specialist and I've been working in the in the medical world for about 20 years. Um, I've been part of some new cutting edge technologies. I, I work on the the device side. So for example, like there's a little model right here of a transcatheter aortic valve. And wait, hold on, is, hold on. This, wait, I gotta, I'm, I gotta pause right there. For people who can't see this, it's too bad. But that's the is that the actual size of the of the aorta? That is your aortic valve size, wow. and this is a 26-millimeter valve. So your valve in your heart, Stephen, is either this big or maybe even a little bigger. The biggest size is a 29, which is just a few millimeters bigger. But this is a this is a very common one, and this is a fuzzy Dacron-like shag carpet, and it sits in the, in the aorta like that, in the aortic valve like this, and then your coronaries are above it, and if I turn it, the blood comes from the ventricle. The oxygenated blood comes through there and out the other side. And that, and what I, what my job is, is I work with the heart teams and I read the films and I put together basically a battle plan for Dr. Sashin. And I'm like, you know, and I work with a very close group of folks and I go, you know, I believe patient Smith is a, is a 26 millimeter valve. I think the access on the right side looks favorable and blah 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 and then and then you would look over it with your expert eyes and you know we'd discuss it if we had a conflict of uh opinion but uh, and then you make the call and then the case day we do you know three to five of these a day and i'll take this big old valve because you've got four valves in your heart and i will crimp it down so small that it will fit into something about that big which will go over a wire into your femoral artery while you are awake. The procedure takes about 45 minutes. And what we'll do is we'll we'll snake the, the valve while it's all crimped down, teeny tiny, over the wire. We'll cross the stenotic aortic valve. We'll rapid pace the heart because your heart is beating like this, right? 
And what we'll do is we'll rapid pace it to where it just kind of flutters for about 10, 15 seconds. And while it's doing that, we expand the balloon that the, the valve is on, crushing the native one to the wall, take it down, remove the system, pacer off, heart starts again, two stitches in the groin, patient goes home the next day. Oh, it's in, it's a miracle cure. It's a, it's a, you know, I've been, it's, it's, a, it's absolutely amazing. Um, this technology and it didn't exist 10 years ago. This is like I mean, brand new stuff. Yeah, someone figured this shit out. I mean, this is incredible. It is absolutely groundbreaking. I mean, it is, I mean, and the data has come in where it is, it is even, it is superior to surgery. So now, now some, I'm not saying surgery is bad because yeah. If you need it, you need whatever you need. But if you are a candidate for this, it is as good or better because you don't have to have a sternotomy. Right. We're going bypass and all that other stuff. When I mean, we got two more questions we're going to answer, but I got to interject with this one. Um, I was a pre-med for, well, from being a high school through college, and then I decided cool. not to go down that path. But in high school, I was in a program. There's two, two classes per day, every day, uh, first two hours of the day or first couple hours of the day for the entire year. And we were working at National Label Medical. And one of the things we got to do is watch open heart surgery, which was amazing, mind blowing. I mean, mind blowing. The heart is moving. You're like, that's the person's heart right well, there. The first three pieces of open heart surgery were the freakiest thing I've ever seen. So first they use a laser scalpel and just get the skin out and it just kind of peels apart and you smell it. Then they take a fucking black and Decker saw and saw through the sternum and you smell it. And then they take the rib spreaders to spread the ribs apart and you hear the cracking. But as soon as that's over, it's like, oh my God, this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen. It, it, it gives you a, it's, it's, it's mind blowing. I mean, I've been doing this, I've been doing medical surgery for, you know, about 20 years, over 20 years now. And I still get geeked out about it every time I see it because it's just, you know, it, I just am amazed at where technology and the, the expertise and knowledge that's been building up over the years, it is amazing. And this, this new transcatheter heart valve theory, what they call it, Transcatheter aortic valve replacement or TAVR. Um, TAVR is like, it's something that, you know, did not exist. And, you know, and you saw like, and you know, sometimes you have to do the sternotomy and the rib spreading and, and yep. all that stuff. And there's nothing wrong with it. It's, but my uncle had to have his mitral valve repaired. And there are some endovascular techniques that he could have used, but the best for his anatomy and everything was open surgery. And they did a phenomenal job and he's doing fantastic today. So it's like, I'm not, I'm not against that, but I'm just making you aware these are new things. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's, it's so wild because Stephen, we have to be mindful about what we are talking about in the room because the patient awake. is awake. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god it is uh, yeah, yeah, it, it, we're, we're sitting there like hold on sir you're gonna feel your heart flutter this is the part where it's gonna flutter and it just basically feels like you've got your breath kind of taken away a little bit but we give them a heads up so they don't panic during that because it's like for 15 seconds it's almost like you you yeah, almost yeah. like you know yeah and it's like hold on this is the part and they're just okay doing good and then shh, the balloon goes up kicks down you got your new heart valve now you got your new heart valve and they're just laying there like I mean, it's freaking amazing. I have to have some uh, eye surgery in a couple of weeks. And I said, they said, we don't have to do it for you, but sometimes we have to pull the eyeball out to do the thing and then put it back in. I said, if you pull my eyeball out and I'm awake for this whole thing, I go, turn it around so I can look at myself, look at myself. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> they said, we don't have to take it out. I said, I said, can you take it out just so I can do that? <laughs> that is so, you know what? 
we just met, right? Yeah. The fact that you would say something like that is like the coolest thing ever. You are like an interesting <laughs> oddball, but I love you. I think that is the coolest thing. Yeah. Like, dude, yeah, that, that's something yeah. I would say well, too. That is really weird, but I like well, it. Well, when I, when I had my knee scoped after blowing out my, uh, my meniscus doing gymnastics uh, 25 years ago or so, um, I said, uh, you know, I want to do it with an epidural so I can be awake during this. And halfway through the surgery, the procedure, I said, can you pull the instruments out? Because I'm watching this on TV and they look like they're the size of, you know, just giant. Yes. They're like minuscule. It's like so, so cool to watch. <clears throat> so whenever I get a chance, you know, I want to see what they're doing to me. When I had my shoulder put back together, I begged them to let me stay awake. They said, nah, because if you move a couple of millimeters, it's going to mess with us badly. So they knocked me out. All right. Backing up. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so yeah. that's what you, that's your day job, which leads us into, I'm going to get back to the connection to the veterans, but that leads us into the thing where most, well, actually, wait, before I do this one, I was going to say, it leads us back to the thing where people assume that if you're in any way in the medical biz, you know, you have buckets of dollar of bills, you know, sitting under your bed. But I wonder in, in the cardiac world, is there a similar, what's the word I'm looking for? A similar description for the surgeons who do this work that there is for orthopedic surgeons where the line is in medical school they're they're strong as an ox and half as smart and if if there's any orthopedics guys listening you know it's a joke i don't know who you are but i was gonna and that was my thing i wanted to be an orthopod so i take it i take that personally is there anything like that in the cardiac world you know there is i would say that you know the cardiac surgeons are a lot like Tom Cruise on Maverick. You know they're all like you know they have to have that. They almost wear like leather scrubs because they're so cool, right? That's kind of the, that's the cardiac surgeons. Whereas the interventional structural cardiologists, because on a heart team that we work with for Taver, we have uh, cardiac surgery, interventional structural uh, cardiology, anesthesia, etc. But then the, the cardiology, those guys are kind of like, oh. I'd probably put them as more like um, like Raiders of the Lost Ark, where um, uh, the very the first one with um, not, not Han Solo. What was his name? Who's yeah, the- that guy. Um, I'm, I'm horrible with names all of a sudden. Um, you yeah, know, that- Harrison yeah. Ford. He's they're Harrison Ford in Raiders of the Lost Ark, where they're like, hmm, I think we can get through this, and because they don't, they're not the cutters, right? They're the kind of endovascular wire catheter guys, and the surgeons are like. We will do it. We can figure out anything. It's all good. So those guys are, it's like cats and dogs playing together. But that's one of the beautiful things about uh, the TAVR procedure is, is when we got FDA approval in 2011 for this, it was mandated that we do it with a heart team because it it really brought where they were almost rivals back in the day because, you know, the, the surgeons will perform a coronary artery bypass graft and the cardiologists will put in stents. So they kind of competed with each other. This was one where we realized the, the, the company I work with, which is Edwards Life Sciences, they realized that the best care for these patients was a multidisciplinary approach. And since we were the only people on the market with this, we were the first with FDA approval with this and still are the leader today. But um, we're like, you know, it makes more sense for patient outcomes if you get an expert surgeon with an expert cardiologist with expert anesthesia and and they all come together and collaborate in this thing we do. So every my normal day is I do a valve conference in the morning where the whole heart team gets together. We discuss the patients that we discussed a few weeks ago that we're doing that day. And we go through everything and then we discuss the future patients and we go through it and we're like, you know, their access, are we going to go, you know, transcarotid? Are we going transfemoral? Most people we go 95% we go transfemoral, yeah. but there are people that have bad access and things. So it's just been, I know it's a really long answer, but it was, um, 
they've come together and it, what's beautiful about it is they become amazing, respectful colleagues to each other and, and care has improved. People, that's, have, that's people are getting right. wonderful care. One of the other things, like the other thing with orthopedic surgeons, like when I had my shoulder done, I wanted someone who couldn't carry a conversation, um, you know, just like was just in the groove who did like 10 of these a day. And that was my guy. And um, in fact, I mentioned that to someone who's a friend of his who cracked up. He says, yeah, it takes a while to get him to be able to talk to humans. And um, when, when we when we I got out of surgery, he comes in and says, boy, we did a lot of work in there. I said, I don't know how I feel about you being so giddy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. You're like, well, as long as they're smiling, that means they're happy with the with the outcome, and that's probably a good thing. That's yeah, it's right. a good one. All right, so on to your buckets of money. <laughs> yes. Okay. So, I mean, I have a house payment. I have a kid in college. One more to go to college. I've got a car payment. I mean, could I have used an extra million dollars? Sure. But you know, my family is a military family. I've never had the honor of serving, but to have the honor to serve those who serve us is very important to me. And, you know, 1% of our country protects the 99% of us. And I have, you know, uncles, my father was a Green Beret in the Special Forces, and my uncles were, you know, a CB in Vietnam, they, they've done all kinds of things. And then I have a bunch of friends from high school that were in Afghanistan and, and Iraq. And, you know, we have an epidemic in this country where, you know, a lot of our veterans come home and they can't get all the way home. They yeah. just they're still stuck in the battlefield or they're stuck somewhere. And and you know, PTSD isn't just with veterans, by the way. I mean, the worst day of your life is whatever tragedy happens to you. It could be a car wreck, it could be whatever it is. That's traumatic stress. And humans are very coping, capable creatures in that we can overcome a lot, but some things are just so profound, or you're so young. Yeah. That, you know, when you're 19 years old dealing with some of the stuff that these guys go through, guys and gals go through, it's not easy. And then you come back and, and you know, being having PTSD, because I've actually had some from the operating room, and, and that's an interesting story. So one of our patients, and this is the veteran tie-in right here, okay? So there was, we've had many veterans that have come through that need heart valve replacement, and we've helped them. But there's one person in particular, his name is Lester Tenney. And he was a World War II veteran. He survived the Bataan Death March, 75 miles, no water, no, no food, no nothing in the jungle. After he was ordered to surrender, 75 miles. Then he went to a prison camp, which, you know, is notoriously bad from yeah. everything we've ever watched about that. Then he was put on a slave ship and taken to Japan, where he worked in a slave labor camp for a couple of years and was on the brink of death in 1945 when his um, slave camp was across the bay from Nagasaki. And he literally with his own eyes witnessed, he didn't know what it was, but he saw the mushroom cloud. He writes about it in his book uh, called My Hitch in Hell. And he writes about his entire experience. And what's really amazing about Lester is, you know, in 1938, when he's going off to, you know, war was brewing, everything, you could kind of see what was going on with, you know, Germany and Poland and everything was going on on that side. And Japan was, you know, we were at an oil embargo against them. So he could see that the writing was on the wall. And rather than just get drafted, he decided he was going to sign up. And so like many young men and at the time, they he went and got married to his high school sweetheart before he took off uh, for war. And he thought about her every day when he was in the in the prison camps and the slave ship and the slave labor camp, but he could not wait to get home and see her. He gets home and see her. They told her in 1942 he was dead. 
She had remarried. And, you know, so he, he opened the door or she opened the door. He gave her, you know, she was, they were obviously emotionally overcome. It was a shock to her. And then, I mean, imagine if your wife had been told that you were dead and moved on three years later and all of a sudden you show up like a ghost. I mean, and she was crying and was really, you know, you know, obviously very, very sad about the whole situation and freaked out. But, but Lester being Lester was like, you saved my life. There's nothing to be sorry for. Holy so then and he basically moved on with his life and created an amazing life on his own. Uh, got a PhD, remarried, had children. And he wrote another book. because I, So I love Lester, right? I love Lester. And I got to meet Lester. And in 19, oh, I don't know. It was uh, well, 2000. It was Japan had finally come around and said, look, we're going to offer a, a um, apology to all surviving POWs that were mistreated. And you got to, we're going to fly you to Japan and we're going to do this. And Lester's like, hell yeah, I'm going to that. But <laughs> at the time he had critical aortic stenosis and was not able to travel. And he was not a candidate. He was 88, 89 years old, was not a candidate for open surgery because he was just too frail. Right. But Lester's a badass, obviously. So Lester's like, I'm going to find. So he went, he was living in Southern California he got online and he realized there was a sapien trial at Scripps Hospital. And he basically would not take no for an answer. It's like, you're doing me with this new <laughs> transcatheter valve thing. And we did. And he went over to Japan to get his apology. Then he came back and he helped us petition the FDA for approval. And thanks to Lester and many, many people, over 800,000 people have now been treated with transcatheter heart valves. And Lester, uh, he lived about seven more years. With that, he, he would live to the age of 96 um, and just an incredible human. And that was part of my, my, my motivation. That's a mind-blowing and wonderful story. So first of all, thank you. Secondly, I don't think people can understand a lot about i'll say it this way um so i was in china during the Tiananmen square massacre i got shot at and held captive wow. with six guys pointing machine guns at my head um, my best friend was there same thing happened to him we were both together I'm, I'm abbreviating the story dramatically or i'm abbreviating significantly it's a dramatic story and yes. um after so we got caught in this shooting spree then <laughs> held captive and blah 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 uh the, the point is not that the point is after they let us go realizing we were not chinese not uh, reporters or spies and basically yelled go or we'll shoot you uh, oh my god as we're riding our bikes that had bullet holes in all the tires Oh, my God. We're Seriously? riding away, and I felt this endorphin wave. Like when you're standing in the ocean facing the shore, and you feel the current, you know, the water coming out behind you, and then you get hit by the wave over your head. That's what it felt like in my brain. And I was, and and like the endorphin rush was so profound. I was thinking, no, I don't want to, I don't want this to happen. I don't want to lose this feeling. I don't want to lose what was going on. But then my next thought literally was, if this happened to me, a couple of times, let alone a couple of times in a month or a week or a day, how would I ever come home and hear someone say something like, honey, the washing machine's broken and not lose my mind? Right, right. And you're older, you know, although yeah. that was that was, well, I, was 20, I was I was 27, 28, I think. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But nonetheless, I mean, you know, the, this is a physiological thing that also, yes. you know, your frame of reference for what's important changes so dramatically yes that i'm amazed when people can come back not when it, they it is amazing back. it is amazing and that is 
we will have to talk about that another time because I am, my dad traveled a lot in oil and then you know, we were in the military and then oil. So I was in China in the eighties just for a short time. And I had some, I had a pen pal that I used to write back and forth to because we would practice English and talk about stuff. And I never heard from him after Tiananmen and he was a regular writer and he's, it just ended. And I don't, it's just really tragic. So that's, I mean, I, that story to me that you told me is that yeah. you were there. Yeah. Oh my God. That it's is rough. unreal. And what I can say is it's not what people heard in both directions. I mean, it's, it's the way it was presented here was very different than what actually we saw on the ground. Um, and who knows what happened to him? Um, yeah. it, it's, it, it was, it was a really weird and wild time. I mean, I can't, uh, I'm I'm grateful for it. Finally, it took yes. a, took a little while, not yeah. not that long, but it took a little while. But I mean, we were there. You know, the famous uh, picture of the guy with his groceries standing in front of the tank. We were in the royal palace or whatever the hotel was. I'm blanking on it now. Watching that go down, and it was like, whoa, shit! And it wasn't the way people presented it. Like, oh, it was a big democracy. It's like, no, this is a guy who was literally coming back with groceries, crossing this major major inner uh, street. And then sees the tanks and was just sort of overcome at that moment. Wow! And it was not, you know, some deliberate thing. It was. Oh no! Th- it, yeah, that's what made it even more amazing. It was just holy. Crap. He was just doing the right thing. He put his life in line for the right thing. It's amazing. Yeah, it was. Th- there's stories. Sadly, um, I had a lot of photographic evidence of things that no one's ever heard of. And when we were captured, they found my camera and removed the yeah. film and. And there's no way to describe what it was. But anyway, you know, that was my little bout. In fact, here's a weird flashback, pun intended, or or metaphor, pun intended, however you want yeah, to say yeah, that. Yeah. Got home and uh, went to the movie theater and saw the first Batman movie. And there's a scene in that movie where the where the muggers who kill Bruce Wayne's parents, they he points the gun at Bruce kid, Bruce Wayne, and the shot they cut to the guy holding the gun. So the gun is facing you and the yeah, audience. To follow you. I had to run out of the room. Um, yeah. And that, that's PTSD right there, man. I mean, that's really because that was a I can only imagine how stressful that would be. And to your point, you know, what if that happened to you for months on end? Well, and here's the weirder part, just to just to dive into this for the fun of it. While everything was happening from the moment we realized they were shooting at us till the moment we I, we got on our bikes and I had that endorphin wave. Um, in fact, what helped me clear up any of the difficulty I was having dealing with this emotionally was realizing the following thing. It was the most lucid and clear I have ever been in my entire life Sure. until I'm on my bike and I had the thought, wow, we almost died. That's wow. when the endorphin rush kicked in. Up until then, I couldn't have been calmer and clearer and more direct and more, I mean, survival instinct. It was fascinating. And literally the only thought that I had, it was kind of a funny one, was I actually had a lot of funny ones. Um, I'll, I'll may as well share those. When we we're running down this road that's like, you know, really, really wide and goes on forever, Chanam. And suddenly we hear automatic weapon fire behind us, which by the way, sounds like popcorn. So part of my brain says, ooh, it sounds like popcorn. And another part of my brain says, shut up and run, you idiot. And say, yeah. oh, I'm running. And my next thought, I'm hearing, you know, we're hearing bullets going by us. And my next thought was, I've spent, I was 26. I spent 26 years 
denying my Jewish heritage. And here's my potentially last thought, guilt, because I think I got my friend involved in this. So, um, so, and then my next thought was, if I die, my parents are going to be so mad at me, which I thought was really <laughs> funny. Um, and, uh, and then while we were captured, uh, they couldn't open my fanny packs that had two zippers, you know, so you could open it up and split it, but they would just grab both and just move them back and forth. And I remember thinking, just like you did, I was thinking, this is funny, don't laugh. Um, and then I open the bag, they find my camera, they get very excited. And I'm thinking, I got a lot of stuff on here. I want to try and rewind the film. So I start to rewind the film and then they hit me with a gun butt in the side. I had another uh, you know, post-China moment where someone bumped into me in that same spot and I kind of collapsed. But um, but as soon as they hit me in the side and grabbed the camera, it's like, oh, right, they make those here. They know how that works. So yeah. it's just like lots of things. Yeah, yeah. But, but the thought that I had from the moment we like hit the ground and waited to see what was going to happen till the moment we got out, was in Buddhism, they say your next rebirth is determined by your last thought. I hope I just want to know that I'm dying so I can get a good one. That was literally <laughs> like the only thought I had. It was weird. And that and I had to keep my friend, you know, within visual distance. Um, I didn't want to get separated from him. Yeah, right. But but again, it's there's so many pieces to that puzzle that are I mean, this is every one of those is reshaping your brain. Yes. And there is a physical you know, the endorphin rush you talked about, it goes to the amygdala and there's other parts of your brain that literally light up. And, you know, right now, one of the one of the groups we're going to be donating to is Veterans Exploring Treatment Solutions. And what they're doing is they're experimenting with like, you know, psilocybin. Psilocybin, yeah, yeah, yeah. I have a friend here in town who's a former uh, Air Force pilot, fighter pilot. His wife one day said to him, if I die before you, do you think you'll cry at my funeral? And he goes, nah. <laughs> And she's like, wait, wait, slow down. <laughs> she goes, what? He goes, I don't think so. She goes, what are you talking about? Goes, I've watched my best friends get blown up five feet away from me or fly into mountains. I mean, I've watched a lot of people die. It's just not my thing anymore. And she's yeah. like, I think you'll cry. He goes, yeah, believe whatever you want. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But he's actively involved in that research. Um, he started out doing meditation research for PTSD. And then once they started being able to do psilocybin research and other uh, compounds as well, MDMA, et cetera. Yes, um, that's, yes. Yeah, he's he's all in on that. Well, it's helping people talk about the worst day of their lives. It's helping them open up because you can't talk about things that are just too painful. Some of them are. And to be able to use, you know, anything that will unlock the door and put you at peace to talk. Because if you can't talk about it, you can't get more than that. I think it's more than that. Because A, you can talk about it. You can bring it up and and bring it out without the same emotional mm, attachments to it. And it's that phenomenon. It's being able to bring it up where you're not getting in that neurological loop. That's what you're literally, again, you're reshaping your brain again. Exactly, Stephen. So like before I was talking about Lester and I was getting, we were both getting a little bit choked up, you know, with that story. I could be able to tell that story clearly without getting that emotional trigger that's going with it at the same time. And for for some of these men and women coming back, it's just so profound. And so they just, it's just, and they just bury it down or they'll try to, you know, you know, self-destructive behaviors oh, no, or other oh, things. Oh. Yeah. Well, and even and even that. Look, let's 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 put a mm, let's not uh, turn that into something blamey. And I know you weren't. No, 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 no. Yeah. So, like, um, so my best best friend at the time was with me for this thing, and the differences in our experience were dramatic. He could barely remember it, so it was not a conscious thing to bury it. Just for whatever reason, his neurology. I mean, he couldn't remember what happened. It was just 
gone for him in many ways, which wow. was part of the, it made our relationship um, sort of dissolve for a little while till we reconnected about 20 years later. And um, because I, I just found it very difficult when I was having a hard time with it, that I had no one to, I mean, the only, oh, that would be, that would be difficult. Right. And I'm yeah. sure that there's veterans that are the same way where somebody remembers something happening and somebody else doesn't. And it's, it's very complex. The mind people are very complex things. Yeah. And, you know, we, to be able to get through that. And so Lester wrote that one book called my hitch in hell about his entire journey there. Because I love Lester. I read his second book. Cause he wrote a second book. I found out I'm like, Oh, there's a second book. It's called The Courage to Remember. Mm. And it was about his PTSD that he went through. Because, I mean, he was in a prison camp, a slave labor camp for five years. Jesus. And uh, was tortured. Everything else happened to Lester. Somehow the guy became an amazing. He just, he would not. His attitude was amazing. He's just a shining light. But he wrote this other book. And, you know, when I was reading it, I was like, oh, you know, that's that sounds like me on some of this. So this is something like me. So, you know, and I'm looking back and I, I realized that there are, you know, I've been part of this cutting edge technologies for 20 years. And when we were doing endovascular aneurysm repair, um, there was a high morbidity and mortality rate. And, you know, when you have these new theory, new new things coming out, part of it is, you know, it's good, but it's like your first generation shoe versus your one now. They're better. And yeah. you get better as you learn. And there were some and we used to do I also there were these um one of the stent graphs that we would do was for car crashes because your seatbelt goes right across here where your aorta is. And a lot of times if you survived the car crash and you were all banged up, your aorta would be like not torn because then you would die, but it would be like it would start to swell yeah, yeah. and it would pop. And when it pops, you're done. It's like a garden hose. You know, it's that big around. So we would go in, be called into these trauma cases and we would put the endograph, which is like a covered stent. Uh, a patch from the inside of the aorta, the big artery in your body. It's as big as your thumb, by the way. And we would go in there and we put them in there. And, you know, there was this, this one 16 year old girl that I won't go into the whole case, but it was traumatic. And it stuck with me for 17 years before I read Lester's book. And I, you know, you come home from that, you work all night on that. It's a horrible experience all around. And she, we couldn't even anesthetize her because she was so broken up. So there's a lot of sound that comes with that. I'll just leave it at that. Yeah. And, um, you know, I was up all night working on that, got home and, you know, it's my kid's birthday party and I'm not really there because, you know, I'm just drinking in the corner. It's not a good, I mean, it's just, so I didn't, so there's a lot of things and in, in medicine right now, there is a doctor named Dr. Bill Lombardi who is leading this charge where, because they don't really talk to doctors about, coping with loss and things that are very important. It's like, you know, it's like, how do we fix it so we don't do it again, but it doesn't really solve it's it's the the science of it, not the art and the the human part of it. So Bill Lombardi is working on that. Uh, Walter Reed is working on that. We're I'm working on it within with my company now that we're we're working on. And Larry Woods, our president, he's been a guy that's been, you know, he was there in the beginning. And Larry's Larry's a guy that started in the mailroom. At, uh, at our heart valve company. And he's been there for 20 something years. And Larry, you know, being in the early days when we were only operating on inoperable patients, high, high, high risk, super yeah. high risk, because yeah. we were testing all this stuff out. And, you know, Larry, when I were talking and he's even been through a lot of, you know, there were things that came up and, you know, our eyes were getting full and stuff because, you know, trauma is trauma, but our service people right now, there's an epidemic in this country 
yeah. of suicide and self-harm. There's, there's, there's some statistic I saw that was 22 vets a day take their own lives. And that is intolerable. That has got to stop. So the million dollars is going to go help a lot of people. Oh, once again, um, thank you on behalf of people that I don't know, which is a horrible, stupid thing to say. It's like when people get offended on behalf of other people. So I'm sure. appreciative on behalf of other people. Just the flip side of that coin. So uh, this will be the most awkward transition I can think of to get back on to things that we were talking about before. Wait, go ahead. You bet. But, but no, let's talk about Survivor now, too. So, yeah. so going back to Survivor. Wait, hold on. Um, Okay, wait, hold on. Let me tell you where I want to go. You tell me where you want to go. I want to hear more about the difference between the edited version of you and the real version of you at some point. I thought it was a good edit. I thought it was a very good edit. I think you know me. If you watch the show, that's me. Um, I think they did an excellent job of showing me. The only things that they did is maybe they they would hide some of my strategy and some of the things because they wanted to keep – because I'm like, I'm on the couch. I'm like, what about that conversation I have with Jesse or Cody or whatever? So – you know, but that was part of the theater of the show. And, you know, I, I get it because, you know, they film 18 of us as it dwindles down, but 24 hours a day. Yeah. And the show is one hour a week. So in 45 minutes, we take out the commercials. So you got to think that they they have to leave a lot on the cutting room floor. But I thought they had an accurate portrayal of every single person out there. Interesting. I really did. That's who they are. And I think Survivor has come a pretty long way. And it's not, there's no like, it's not like a gotcha show. It's this, they show the organic experience of what they, what, what happens out there and, you know, good, bad, or otherwise it's, it's truthful. It's a real experience. It's a real show. Things are all real out there. And it was just, I'm so grateful for CBS and Survivor because it was such an amazing, amazing experience for me. And, and, you know, being an older player, I wanted the adventure. I wanted the experience and I wanted to go deep into Gabler, me. And I did all that. And I came out the other side, a better person. I can't, you know, I've still got growth and and learning to do, but I'm a, I'm better than when I went in. And that's Mm. all we can ask of any experience that we put our heart and soul into. And then to be able to do something positive uh, with the, the winnings is even better but, you know, if you go back to wait, hold on, hold very, on, hold on. Yeah, yeah. You, you've ruined the show. You know that, right? <laughs> How so? Because whoever wins season 44, if they don't donate that money, they're going to look like complete assholes. <laughs> I'm the first person in the history of the show, uh, 42 seasons. I'm the 43rd to donate their entire purse. And, you know, maybe it will continue it. And, you know, I don't know, maybe if I was 25, I would have donated half of it. But I mean, I don't begrudge anybody for anything. And I think that, you know, we're all on our own journey. And, you know, for my journey, this was the right, the right turn for me, the right, the, the right turn to do. And in fact, a funny story. My wife and I, before I went on the show with a, a veteran buddy, a roommate of mine from college, we were joking around about like, Oh, Steven, yeah, you're not, there's no way you're going to win this thing, whatever. But if you do win it, you know, what are you going to do with the money? And we were joking around like, oh, I'm going to buy a Zeppelin and we're going to throw cookies out to people and, you know, whatever. Um, and then we started laughing and, and then we got kind of, somehow we got on a more serious note. We go, you know, what if you donated the money and, you know, you've got a military family and, you know, we've got a lot of friends of mine. And I'm like, that's an amazing idea. And we started talking about it. So I go on the show, I come back, see my wife, and I'm like, guess what? <laughs> I'm, I'm skinny because I lost, I was 200 pounds going in the show as 162 coming out. So I lost 38 pounds in a month, basically. And I, you know, she's super skinny. She can put her arms all right around me. And I'm like, I won. She's like, no way. And I go, 
And I hope you're also okay with what we talked about because I did that too. <laughs> and what was her response? I mean, obviously. She was. She, was, she laughed and she's like, no way, amazing. It's so cool. So it's been really great. And the amount of positivity and love that's come back has been tenfold to what I've given. So I'm grateful for that. And, you know, Survivor was a real journey to get onto the show. So wait, I want to ask about that, but I want to pause. Have you set up any way for people who are inspired by what you've done to add on to what you to what you're doing? So I haven't in that I thought about creating a foundation. Yeah. But there's so many good foundations out there okay. that I am. I created a fund instead and the money's parked in there and I'm going to be donating two foundations. So okay. what I'm going to do is I'm on Instagram and I'm on uh, Twitter now, uh, which is kind of new to me, but I'm on those things. And um, I'm going to post once I, I'm still figuring out the taxes right now because I've yeah, got to yeah. get, you know, W2. I've got a lawyer and an accountant figuring it out. But once I get it all figured out, I'm going to post the organizations we're donating to right. so people can donate to them. And I'm also going to be posting updates as we as we are doing things for veterans and people in need. We're going to be posting that to where, you know, people will see that experience. I've got another idea for you and uh, pardon me, but I can't help doing things like this. If there was a moment from survivor, something you did, something you ate, something, you know, whatever you could, you could basically do something sort of ice bucket challenge ish. When you get to that point of like, do that and then spread the word for whatever. Awesome idea. Yeah. That, an awesome a- idea. I love that idea. Actually. That's a new idea. I, I haven't, I didn't think of that. It's totally yours, but I mean, it's like, I think that's a really, it's a fun idea. So I like it because it's fun. Yeah. I like it because people can also experience it and and be a part of this. Yeah, exactly. And I think when, you, when you're inclusive and you're having fun, good things happen. Yeah. No. Um, well, hey, my pleasure. That was an interruption to what I was going to ask was you were saying something about the audition process. So it's a, quite a process. And then with COVID going on, because, you know, COVID was still in the thick of it during this. So I, I turned 50 a couple of years ago. I was a huge fan of the show. And one of my bucket list things was I'll put an audition tape together and submit it to Survivor by the time I'm 50. So I was turning 50. So my back's against the wall. I guess it's this year. So if you Google Gabler Survivor, you'll see my audition video. It's three minutes of power. It's pretty fun. So I put this video together more for my friends and my family to have fun with it because it's just like me being crazy. And it starts off with me with my goats. I've got a couple goats out there. And the goats are like right in the foreground. Then I have Motorhead with Ace of Spades playing. So it was all cool. Um, And then sure enough, they called me. And I was going to be on 42, but they canceled one of the seasons because of COVID. So then rather than put all the people that were going to 40, I guess what what would have been that, that group, instead of releasing them and putting them to the back of the line, Jeff put them to the front of the line, which is the right thing to do. And they said, Gabler, we're going to call you back in a, in a year if that's cool with you. And I'm like, yeah, call me back. I'll be ready. So I just started training. And, <laughs> and, and you know, and then, you know, the next year they did call me back. And then I was, you know, I finally got the nod uh, February 20th that I was going to be taking off on April 1st. And, but I had been training that whole time, which is where we are connected. So this is a, it's a, it's a great backstory we've talked about, but that's kind of where, so I bought a slack line for my backyard and tied it between two trees. And I started trying to slack line and, you know, you're, you need to be, I was at first doing, I've got a few props with me, but I'm trying to slack line in something like this, oh, right? Yeah. No, that's not going to work. It's not going to work. For people listening, that was, uh, I won't mention the name of the shoe by brand. I'll say it rhymes with uh, mocha and it's a big, thick, heavily padded shoe. It's it's, it's the typical, 
you know, running shoe from the seventies that everybody's kind of thought was, you know, the more padding you had, the better. And, you know, the problem is, is it, is it completely changes your walk? It can changes your balance and your core strength. So I experimented around, I was experimenting around with other shoes. Cause I'm like, this isn't, you know, I get to bring, you know, they allowed you to bring two pairs of shoes to survivor. Right. And one was like a water shoe and one was another shoe. And it's up to you, whatever you wanted to pick. So I was like, I know how important your shoe choice, because I stand on my feet all day in the operating room. So I'm like, I, your shoe choice is very important. And then from being a, an athlete, you know, younger years all the way through now, I'm, I know that your shoe choice is very important. So I was looking at different shoes and different things. And, and I think it was my sister or my wife, but somebody sent me, the the zero either that or maybe when i was looking for all these different shoes zero popped up on my feed or something somehow i'm so foggy back how i i keep because i was going i'm checking out all these different shoes and i went through like a a dozen or more manufacturers to figure out the best shoe to bring and i'm actually holding this is the pair that i brought and there's <laughs> even some some dirt on them yeah there's still even some dirt from Fiji on these and so this is again, the pair wait, I brought with wait, me for, for people who aren't watching. So that's a pair of our excursion fusions. So, um, all right. So, um, excursion right. fusions. I liked the tread on them, and I liked that you know the the you know some ankle support, and they lace up. But I also liked their waterproofness. And then you know, like you show on the thing, they just crumple up. Like there's nothing to them. So I started practicing my slack lining in those shoes, and it was because I was I basically couldn't use the big shoes. Yeah. I tried vans. They don't even have the, any support. It wasn't the right way. I tried, I tried everything. I trust me. I tried it because this is like a really important competition I'm doing. And zeros, when I put them on, I got on the slack line and it was better than bare feet. It was actually better than my bare feet. I would just, cause it gave me a little bit of protection, a little bit of grip, but I could still feel the wire. And I, I practiced the slack line, you know, hours a week and really built up my core, built up my balance I jogged in, you know, I've got a, a little bit like a farm road and I, it's like a half mile down and back, so, you know, mile round trip. And I would just jog that. I would take them on little hikes with me and build up my, the muscles in the bottom of my feet as well as, and what was interesting. So I was an athlete when I was younger, I had a lot of knee issues as well and hip issues, knee, hip, all the, all the good stuff. And, you know, I had a couple knee surgeries for meniscus issues and stuff myself and skiing and whatnot. So then I start wearing these and it's a, it's a weird walk. It's a different walk because we're used to walking on these one inch pads under our heels and stuff. So you start walking a little differently and my knee pain and stuff, which I was worried about my knees going into the show, it disappeared. Okay. I'm not saying it's a cure-all. I'm just telling you it helped me. So that. In the fact that it helped me with my balance, it helped me with with my core strength, it helped me get in touch with the ground in a in a more more natural way. And, and one of the edits that was left out was there was a beam, a really thin beam that if, if you walked over it and you got to their side and you unlocked the, the log, it would split open, then everybody else could run across it. So two of us were opted to go across the narrow one, and it was Mariah and myself, and we both got across. 
And my zeros were, I believe, were one of the reasons I had such good balance in there because there's a net, like a 10-foot fall, and you fall in this net, and then you basically your team's going to lose because you got to go back and start over. So it was really important. And I knew that was going to be coming sometime in Survivor. So my shoe choice was really important. The only mistake I made was for my second pair, I, I got a pair of uh, like, you know, those five-toe shoes, the, yeah. the body glove shoes. Yeah. So I got those, and I wish – I brought these. Uh, Aqua Export. I was thinking about that. I should have brought these because these, because see, the thing with these, they dry. Yeah. And my the the body gloves I had on those five finger guys, while they were fine, they never dried. And I was in the jungle, and my feet started just rotting. I was getting jungle rot from wearing them. They were wet all the time. So I had to once I realized that, like. Like on episode two or three, you'll see my feet are just rotting off. They look really bad. And it was, I was wearing these, these, these body gloves, scuba shoes, if you will, every day. And because it was wet. And then at the competitions, I would wear my zeros mostly. And it was a mistake. I should have had two pairs of zeros. If I ever go back again, that's what I'm doing. <laughs> so that's what's happening. I just, that, that was, that was my little, my, my shoe journey. But it was so important because, and all the cast members were like, you know, we sit around and they were like, what are those? Cause they hadn't seen them, right? Like your, your logo is small yeah. and you know, it's kind of black on black. And they're like, you know, what are you wearing Gabler? And I'm like, dude, these are zeros, man. Try them on. So people were trying them on and like, Whoa, that's a different feel. I'm like, yeah. So, you know, for me, I became a big fan obviously. And then you guys were nice enough when I got back to send me these bad boys, uh, which is yeah, the Alpines because I you know I live up here in Idaho where it's it's cold, and wearing those guys is just awesome. They're 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 great. Well, a uh, you know I, I couldn't be uh, more grateful for all of your support with that. That's totally awesome. Um, I'm going to wrap this up and ask you this question, and, and I'll I'll reciprocate if you want. Uh, give me one behind the scenes story that you're not supposed to tell anybody. Well, okay. I mean, well, not even, see, not even not supposed to, but I mean, they don't want you talking about behind the scenes stuff, but you know. Yes. Okay. So I'll, I'll give you a great one. Um, so what happened was, um, you know, there's only so much time, but this season was really close. As I mentioned earlier, right? We're a close bunch of people. Yeah. We were competing against each other, but we were genuine caring and goodwill towards one and all throughout. And if you, if you watch the show, you know, me and Ellie, kind of broke, you know, there was a trust break early. We kind of had to go and we had to kind of, we came to a head at some point and there was a shootout, but earlier than that, and even in the middle of some of that, me and her were sitting there and I, my daughter was a senior in high school last year and her prom was coming up and I was going to be gone for her prom. I was on, on Baca beach and, you know, Ellie knew I was down that day and, you know, we were kind of adversaries. We weren't, but we were, and, you know, she was like, hey, Gabler, how are you doing today? I'm like, you know, I'm having a tough day. It's, you know, this is my daughter's, you know, prom. I'm missing it. I miss a lot of stuff because of my job. And I was just like, you know, I'm missing another big, big moment. And Ellie was so cool. She goes, why don't we do a Baca prom night? <laughs> and we went down to the beach, me and Ellie. We went and got some snails off the rocks. Janine went and found some hermit crabs. Owen and Sammy got a fire going, found a coconut. And we basically had, you know, no more than probably a mouthful or two of food, but we had this little prom feast. And then we did, we danced under the stars on the beach and we did our little Baca prom night. And, 
you know, that's 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 some of the stuff that, you know, they don't show because they want to show more of the drama on it because yeah. there were other other more dramatic things. But uh, everybody was it was just a special bond of special people. And we're friends to this very day. Everybody awesome. is very close. Oh, that's great. Tell me one of yours. Tell me one from Shark Tank. Well, my favorite. Well, there's there, there are a handful of them because um, you, you're right. It got edited way down just like yours did. In fact, when people watch and if people haven't seen it, you can go to zero shoes dot com slash Shark Tank. But um my favorite was a disagreement that I have with my wife about whether she did or did not say something. So Robert, uh, so Kevin made us this $400,000 offer. He, he wanted half the company. We were offering 400 grand for, uh, or we were offering 8% of the company for 400 grand. And I, I eventually said, how about 10? And he said, oh, you're crazy. I said, perhaps, but um, I don't think so. But anyway, yeah, yeah. We, it was such a non-starter that we forgot he made the offer. And at one point, Robert reminds us, in fact, it actually happened this way. Robert says to me, what do you think about those, you know, those five toe shoes? And I said, oh, there's creating a wave of awareness and we're surfing on that wave. And he jumps out of his chair. He goes, you have a perfect answer for every question. He's like mad. And I looked at him. I said, it's our business. Um, so then he says, well, look, you know, there's an offer on the table. And we're like, what? oh, right, Kevin. So Lena says, and she does remember this. She says, so are you bringing anything to the table other than money? And he says, well, you know, I'm a smart businessman. I've got a good Rolodex. And I remember her saying, so nothing. <gasps> oh, man, zing, Mr. <laughs> Wonderful. You know, he deserves a zing now and again. It's pretty good. Yeah. Well, in fact, so what happens on, on, on Shark Tank is all the sharks, you know, they're trying to make good television for themselves. They're trying to, sure. it's called Shark Tank, not Stephen and Lena Tank. And so, um, so they each have a line that they kept repeating over and over and over because that's the thing they thought would get them on TV. Kevin's was, I get it. I get it. It's a bunch of Indians running around the desert naked on peyote. Well, they cut out the on peyote part, but here's the fun part. We get out of the tank. We walk back out after we turn down everybody's deal. And uh, they stop us and say to Lena, so what'd you think about Kevin's offer? And she says, if he thought the one, if he thought we were going to give up half of our company, he was the one on peyote. Oh, that's a great well, line. It's uh, I, I love this woman so dearly. And um, so that was really fun. And here's a, here's a the most interesting behind the scenes thing. And I don't know if you guys had anything like this. You get out of the tank and they make you meet with a psychologist. Yes, we did. We just wrapped up about uh, two weeks ago. Now, our psychologist, I half joked, could have been replaced by a three by five card. And the three by five card, you just put it on your refrigerator and you read it every day, which is in six months, no one will remember what happened. You, for the next six months, you'll be continually replaying this in your head, thinking about what you could have done differently. And I promise you that even if you had done all those things perfectly, it still might not have changed the outcome. If you just remember like those three things, you'll get over it pretty quickly and it won't bother you while you're getting over it. And, yeah. over it. and that's been the case. What'd they do for you? So they had a, a psychologist, Dr. V. She was awesome. Uh, we met her before the game started. So to go on an island with 18 people with sharp objects and everything else, they want they want they want to make yes, hold on, you know, hold on. And in our version, I had this idea where I was going to make a comment about how strong I was, and I was going to you know because I was deadlifting 450 pounds at the time, and I'm five five, and I knew Cuban was going to like have a thing about that, and I said I'm going to go you know put them on my shoulders and squat with them, and they went don't touch the celebrities. So, <laughs> that's our version of sharp objects. <laughs> well, yeah, they want they want crazy people, but not crazy people, right? They 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 want so they we had to do all these psychological exams. Um, we had to meet with a couple of psychologists and psychiatrists. Um, there's a lot that goes on to getting on the show, but then there was this one lady, Dr. V, 
uh, Dr. Veronica, she was our person and she was on site in case anybody needed to talk. Cause you know, the game is 24 hours a day. It's nonstop. It's really yeah. crazy. You're, you're, you're hungry. You're tired. You've got bug bites on your bug bites. I mean, there's all this stuff going on. Plus you're trying to, you know, get, get through the, to the very end by yourself. And there's a lot with it. And then the show is crazy. And then because it's a season instead of an episode, they, had her available where she would check in with us once a month. Oh, wow. And her last check-in was last month and she was great. You know, I, I was, I'm being, I'm older. I've been through a lot of stuff, you know, in my life. And I'm just kind of, you know, like some of the people were, you know, needed a little bit more, the younger folks. Cause I mean, I can't imagine doing that. The youngest guy on the show was 19 years old, Sammy. Oh, and he, what a stud. He just was like, I couldn't believe he was 19 because he was so above his age. He was so, he was a big guy too. So, but he was just mentally, I would have, I would have put him at 25. I just put him at, and it's really funny because he kind of, uh, you know, falsely represented himself as being 22 and only a 19 year old would fake their age at 22, <laughs> 22. because to me and you, it's like 22, 19, it's the same. And, and yeah. you know, he's like, I'm 22. It's much older. I'm like, dude, you're whatever. So, you know, that was kind of funny, but um, he's a great, great kid. In fact, me and him, you know, he just turned 20. I'm 52. Now I was the oldest. He was the youngest. We were on Baca together from day one, an absolute champion, love him. And me and him may even do something together on reality TV in the future. Cause he's just uh we're fun. We're, we're, it would be good TV because we're different, but we're quirky and fun. And he's, he's really competitive. So am I, it's just, it's fun. So I, I, again, many great friends, many great experiences. And I came out of there with several records, mm. all time survivor records. And I was wearing my zero shoes for one, for, for several of those I made, I did, I had was wearing my zeros when I, I won the very first individual immunity challenge and, shattered the record by about 30 minutes on the grip challenge. Um, that was episode seven, I believe. And then I held the all time record for fastest fire ever made on survivor. I beat it by a minute and I was wearing my zeros and my, yeah, it was just I'm, all I'm my, not sure. I'm not sure they had an impact on that one, but okay. You know, all I can tell you is they were my lucky shoes, man. There we and go. I was just like these shoes are here. Go. I don't even wear these anymore. Yeah. These guys are, in, they still have feet. Dirt from Fiji on them, and they're, frame them. they're still frame them. in great shape. Stick but, them in a box, frame them. I'm going to do something with. Yeah, they're they're in the they're in a box in the closet right now. But I'm going to do something with them. But I had to undo them just to show you, Stephen, because they were my just having them on because that was later in the season. I was just like, okay, I can do. I've won so many competitions with these on. I'm wearing them, and plus, I the other ones kept my feet too wet. <laughs> I, yeah, I had I, when I was a, a gymnast, um, I had a T-shirt. It's like I had to wear that T-shirt day of the meet. No question about it. Right. And, There's and, something about it. Well, and and here's the joke for me. I knew that it was just superstitious. I knew that it had no impact. And but I enjoyed it. And, and the night before meet, I'd always have spaghetti. And I just enjoyed. I mean, it was very transparent, but I loved the ritual of it. And I think there's I think there's a there there for that. It's not doing anything per se, but there is something for the ritual. Exactly. Like the balance beam, obviously the shoes were key on that. Yeah. The, the struggles through the, the the mud, the sand, all lifting, all the stuff, all that stuff was great. The, um, you know, but having them on, like even doing the fire making challenge, 
I wore my challenge outfit. Like I had this camo shirt I was wearing. I had these short shorts. looked like Officer Dangle from Reno 911. I had my, my, my zero shoes on. And I just was like, I put on everything that I wear because that was my battle, my ritual. And because I was, I was thinking, I was like, you know, maybe I'll have my shirt off. I'll do whatever. I'm like, don't be hot dog and don't be grand. Just stay focused. Wear everything that you need. Like when you go into the to battle, you're going to battle here. And and I don't know. They were definitely your ritual starts with your feet and it goes all the way up. So I love it. Well, um, Mike, this is actually I, I gotta. I'm gonna close it with this thing. When we were chatting. You would send us some pictures from the show, and I said, "Hey, can we use these?" And you said, "You know, not till the show finishes." Um, it was at that moment. You know, there's a, there's a weird thing like having been on reality television. You watch reality television, and you can kind of tell how it's being, how reality is being changed. You can just mm-hmm. feel it. Like I hosted a television show way back when it was called Disc Doctors. It was car talk, but for computers, it was on television. And so we'd take phone calls and we'd answer people's computer questions. And I remember listening to car talk. And thinking, God, how do these guys know so much? And the way we did our show is they'd call. And if we didn't know the answer, we'd research it. And then we'd call them back and we'd do the whole thing. So when I, after doing that show, I heard car talk and I could tell by the tone in their voice, they were doing the same thing. They didn't know all this stuff in advance. They were actually just probably reading off a paper from someone who did the research and gave it to them. So there's a similar thing with um, reality TV where I can just, you know, tell what's going on. So when you sent me that email back saying we have to talk, you know, after the show's done, it's like, oh, he won. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you kind of you kind of know the uh the yeah some of my friends would be like gabler i think you may have won i think you may have won i'm like dude me am i seriously gonna win come on man come on and they're they like so you, and i usually say something kind of like your your other friend i would go hey even if i get deep in the game you know because at this point it's like mid-season and i'm like so they knew i was going to get somewhere into the yeah. i'm like you know i'm like hey just getting as far as i've gotten is is pre- I'm pretty proud of that. You know, we'll see. So they were almost like so so self-deprecating that they were like, maybe he didn't win. I don't know. I kind of leave it out there because yeah. I wanted to keep them on the edge of their seats just like your friend did, which was the way to go. And it just was really what an experience. And and you know, that was Jeff again, because Jeff was like, Don't tell it, you know, keep it, don't even hint, don't even do anything, and just keep it as vague. And I would say things that would throw people off my scent as best I could because it yeah. was, it just was for the betterment of the show. I just thought of this, um, you know, one of the greatest outcomes of the show wasn't even for me or Lena or our business. My parents, um, uh, and this is going to sound mean when I say it, and it's not my intention. Um, they were very social status conscious. And so they, inv- now I don't have a thing about, you know, making my parents proud or whatever. I, I mean, I'm in my own little. Product. We all want to do that, but yes, it's like you know, it's just yeah. not my not my thing. I mean, my dad and I were kind of competitive and whatever. It was not a thing, but very socially conscious. And so they invited all of their friends over to watch the show. And I don't even remember if we told them what happened, frankly. Um, but they watched the show, and all of their friends were really impressed with how we did on the show. So that gave them a big social status boost. And I'm so grateful for that because I would have never even thought to do something that could have helped them in that way because I don't under, I don't have you're that. You're just trying to win. You were you were doing what you're trying for your well, business. Well, I mean, simply that yeah. simply I don't have that gene in me to care. So, um, but the fact that you know, a and my father also didn't understand a lot of what I did in my life. But when we started the business, you know, that was something that we could relate with or through. And so that whole thing of just being on the show, 
how we did, how that impacted our relationship and how that helped them in a way that, you know, was important for them. I was yes. very, very grateful. And, you know, and what it's done for the business, of course, you know, a whole other thing. I, I can easily say Shark Tank made us and by us, I mean the company rich. If it weren't for the show, we would have never even thought to try to build what we've created in the 10 years since. And um, uh, so, you know, it's an amazing run. Stuff. And, you know, yeah. it's great to have platforms like that. And that's why I think, you know, shows like Shark Tank or Diners, Dives and Drive-Ins and that kind of stuff. It's like they really help people. Yeah. And, get get exposure to other people that want those things and these new ideas come out and it's an amazing i mean there's an amazing technology platform now that they share and use like shark tank is entertaining it's interesting and it's a launching pad for many really smart entrepreneurs yeah no it's been it it's been a great gift and we're hoping for a follow up as well even though we didn't make a deal because we know what it would be worth to us now and worth to the number of people who could see it you know 7 million people watching what we now have would be a really big deal and our whole mission is just getting shoes on people's feet so they can see how it changes their life so it's a and- different feel i mean when you put them on it's it doesn't feel it feels better than bare feet if that makes sense but it also feels like that and it just i, I mean I, you have to try them for a week to believe them. The good, it's the good news, bad news. The good news is the experience sells it. The bad news is the experience sells us. We have to find ways of giving people the experience when we don't have, when we're not just, you know, ubiquitous, we can't, you can't go into any store and find us. Yeah. We're getting there, getting there, but, but blah, you know, blah, if you guys go back to Shark Tank, you tell me, I'll come running across the screen or something. I'll, I'll do, <laughs> oh. I'll, I'll do something. You know what? Oh my God, that is such a brilliant idea. I'm going to reach out to them as soon as, so now we're in 2023. As soon as we have our 2022 financials published, because we have to wait till they're published, I'm reaching out to the producer and I always do this every year. And I go, by the way, here's how we're doing. And it's all because of you, but I'm definitely going to drop your name and say, here's here's who our guest would be, which would be a riot because of the overlap with the production of the show. That'd be a hoot. Hey man, I'm there. You, you let me know. We'll get it done. I'll, I've got my, I have my whole battle outfit in a box. <laughs> it hasn't been touched right. since then. That'll be uh, good. Officer Dangle short short. So be ready because you're going to see him. I have chicken legs and they'll be shown, but I'll be hopefully they'll be they'll be focusing on my cool shoes instead of my knobby knees. <laughs> well, as long as I get both your knees and your shoes, that's all I care about. So, <laughs> all right. Well, um, Mike, if anybody wants to follow what you're up to so they can be more helpful to veterans or anything else, um, how can they stay in touch with you? You know, I'm on Instagram and I'm on Twitter. And uh, what's your Instagram? What's your Twitter? I think it's Gabler Mike or hold on. I'll to, I don't know, man. I'm new to all this stuff. I, I love, it. I love that you have it. no idea. Yeah, I don't know. I'll have to email you back. Wait, hold on. Wait, wait. No, no. I'm going to look. Hold on. Instagram.com. I'm going to oh, see. If it's at Gabler. Gabler one Mike is my my Twitter is at Gabler one Mike. And yeah, there it is. So I don't know if you can see that. Instagram, one, wait, I'm, I'm, I'm just searching. I'm in another window here searching to see if I can find you. Okay. You're not Gabler one Mike on Instagram. So I'm no, just, gonna... I think I'm Gabler Mike on Instagram. Let's see. Here. You are your Gabler Mike, G-A-B-L-E-R Mike on Instagram and That's me. Gabler one Mike on Twitter. Thank you very much. Yeah, I'm on there. And um, yeah, those are the two best ways to keep up with me. And I am going to be posting, you know, the charities that we're going to be donating to and you know, one of the things I want to know is, you know, I don't just want to write the checks and say, good luck with it. I want to know, you know, I'd like to know, and I also want to be involved. I like, Absolutely. I, like let me be involved with these things. And if I can help veterans, if, if by, by my presence or whatever I can do, you let me know. 
And so I'm going to be posting that on Instagram and Twitter as well. So I'll be on there. Awesome. Awesome. Mike Gabler, it's been a total, total pleasure. Um, I hope everyone else enjoyed this as much. Uh, And just a quick reminder, go over to www.jointhemovement.com for previous episodes, all the ways you can find us on social media. If you have any questions, comments, recommendations, want to tell me my, I got a case of cranial rectal reorientation syndrome, you can drop me an email at move, M-O-V-E, at jointhemovement.com. And most importantly, just go out, have fun and live life feet first.